Welcome to Legal Legends of the Bluegrass. Our special guest today is Judge Barry Willett, who serves as a circuit court judge in Jefferson County. Following a successful career as a trial attorney, Judge Willett has now served on the bench for more than 20 years in Louisville. In addition to offering practicing tips to attorneys of all skill levels, Judge Willett also provides insight into what he believes trials will be like in the post-COVID world. We hope that you enjoy today's episode. Judge Willett, good afternoon. How are you today? Hey, John, I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you uh, for agreeing to be our uh, next participant on the uh, Legal Legends of the Bluegrass podcast. Uh, and you are our first uh, judge that we've had on the podcast. So, so thank you for agreeing wow. to uh, sit down with I'm us. Honored. I'm honored. Thanks for not making me wear a tie. I don't, it's yeah. so comfortable. Yeah, it's nice. Um, judge, obviously a lot of the, uh, the Louisville attorneys are, are very familiar with you, uh, but for those who uh, in other parts of the state, uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about you, uh, your career and uh, what you do today. Well, I'm a, a local kid. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. I went to Seneca High School, graduated in 1975. Uh, did a, a tour of state schools. I did my freshman year in college at Eastern Kentucky University. I had so much fun there. I knew I needed to get away from that environment and maybe study a little bit harder. So I came back to the University of Louisville for a year, and then I ended up transferring uh, for the remainder of uh, two years at the University of Kentucky. I got my UK blue on right now, um, where I really enjoyed that experience. Uh, I really kind of fit in, I think, at the University of Kentucky and uh, graduated there with a degree in political science. So what do you do with a degree in political science other than go to law school? So I went to law school at the University of Louisville graduated. I always knew that I wanted to stay in Louisville and practice here in Louisville, so I was able to do that. Uh, I started out, uh, most people don't know, in a large kind of a corporate defense firm. We called it Little Green Bomb. It wasn't Green Bomb Doll McDonald, but it was Little Green Bomb. Uh, Green Bomb, Green Bomb, Trites, Brown, blah, 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 a bunch of different partners. Uh, and I got to work with uh, some really good lawyers in the litigation department there. We uh, represented international corporations, uh, did a lot of interesting things. I worked with Bill Boone, who was a very good lawyer, taught me a lot. Uh, but I, I knew I didn't want to be a corporate lawyer. That just wasn't me. I didn't like uh, having uh, in-house legal department people tell me what to do and how to do it and why to do it. So I kind of got more and more interested in representing plaintiffs in personal injury litigation. Uh, I had gotten involved with what was called CATA back then, the Kentucky Academy of Trial Attorneys, now KJA, back when I was a law student in the mid 80s. Uh, Sharon Helton was our director and uh, Sharon had me doing all kinds of things. I would help with seminars, I would help put stuff together, I would help with the speakers, I would help with educational programs, publications. It was a much smaller, more intimate group back then. Uh, but got to meet a lot of great people, people like Pete Perlman and Larry Franklin. And uh, I just really was interested in the plaintiff side, helping the little guy uh, speak when they couldn't speak for themselves. Uh, so when I got into private practice, I had the opportunity in litigation to defend some personal injury cases, but I kind of also went into the representing the plaintiff side sometimes to the chagrin of some of my partners, but uh, 
I really enjoyed that. I could really feel like I was doing something good representing the little guy. So uh, when the Greenbaum firm closed, uh, I went in with uh, Kevin George and Stephen George and practiced with them and just ended up going into full-time plaintiff's personal injury litigation. And that's what I did the remainder of my uh, legal career. Um, I, I had a, a wonderful experience in the late 90s. My friend, Justice Nick King, uh, had to recuse in a case on the Supreme Court. And back then, if a justice disqualified in a case, they would pick their replacement. So I was named a special justice on the Kentucky Supreme Court to hear a case. It was a criminal case, ironically. Uh, so that whole experience, going through that file and studying and researching and getting ready for oral arguments and talking with the other justice about the case, that really kind of solidified my interest in someday becoming a judge. Uh, I talked to my wife about that, and she had absolutely no interest in me going into public service. Uh, so I kind of put that on the back burner for a while. Uh, Unfortunately, my first wife, Debbie, passed away tragically in a plane crash in 1998. So uh, after that happened, there was really more of a motivation to go to the bench because it would let me continue to stay involved in the legal profession but not have to travel as I did as a practicing trial lawyer. Uh, so in 1999, I ran for a circuit court seat. Um, first, uh, it was a div different division, Division 12, I believe. Uh, my campaign people refocused me and said, we're going to run for Division 1. But the judge in that division hadn't made a decision yet, Ernie Jasmine, whether he was going to seek re-election. Uh, we got into that division, and he decided not to run for re-election. Uh, it was a five-way uh, uh, primary election uh, my opponent and I were the two highest vote getters. So we went on to the general election in November of 99 and were successful. And I was sworn in January 1, 2000 uh, as a circuit court judge in division one. Been there ever since. Wow, so 20 years on the bench now. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Young and cute, look at me now. <laughs> that's really interesting, your, uh, your the debut to your um, career on the bench started at the Supreme Court. That's a, Yeah, I kind of worked, I kind of worked, worked my way backwards. It's, that was a fascinating experience. Uh, because you, it, it, uh, Nick, I have to tell a story about Nick King. He's a great guy. He, uh, Nick would, uh, send me copies of new Supreme Court cases. Uh, and I could tell it was him sending it because he would fill out the envelope with my name and address. He didn't have a, a secretary do it, but he would take the case and he would, he would not only uh, send me the case and say, here, this is something I thought you'd be interested in. He would highlight the actual passages. I guess he thought I needed to really read and learn. So, I mean, that's the kind of time and energy he put into the job. I don't know where he found the time to do that, but uh, you know, he, he, he's the epitome of what we need on the Supreme court. Uh, like we have there now with uh, Lisa Hughes, very bright, very hardworking. Those, those people I have a great deal of respect for because that's a tough job. They work really hard day in and day out. Uh, as a trial court judge, you know, we, we 
there's so much that we have to know, so much that you have to do. It's a very broad-based uh, general jurisdiction. You know, we not only preside over personal injury litigation, but business litigation and criminal litigation. Uh, we, do, we take appeals from district court and from administrative agencies. Uh, there's a lot that we have to do and not a lot of time that we have to do it in. So we do the best we can with the limited resources that we have. We try and get a good, reasoned, well-researched opinion out the door, and then we send it up to those nice, smart judges at the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court uh, to correct any error that we have made. So it's a pretty good system. It works pretty good day in and day out. Yeah, you brought up a good point there. I'm always fascinated when I sit through motion hour, uh, particularly in Jefferson County, at just the, you know, tip, I'll, I'll be there for the criminal docket, but then especially on the civil docket, it's just all these different cases and you know, very, as you said, so many different areas of the law uh, that you all have to, you know, rule on and understand. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, nobody, when you come to the bench, you really don't have the experience, the breadth of experience that you need. Most people come either with criminal experience or with civil experience. You know, I think gone are the days of uh, the great trial lawyers that handle both sides. Uh, the same lawyer that would handle the significant plaintiff's personal injury case would also be the same lawyer that defended a criminal in a high-profile high criminal case. You know, you don't see that anymore. Probably the closest thing we have to that is Steve Romines, uh, is a renowned criminal defense lawyer who has recently kind of opened up the plaintiff's personal injury uh, part of his practice and, and as a skilled trial practitioner, has done very well. It's the same skill, same talent, just in a different area of expertise. I've grown accustomed uh, for several years now to seeing you at the KJA conference. Uh, pretty much every year, I think you typically try and attend the, uh, the judges event that the KJA puts on. And I didn't understand until recently uh, just how much your involvement was with KJA when you were practicing and then you rose all the way to the president. Yeah, they had a weak year and they needed somebody to be president, so I snuck in. Uh, no, I kind of worked my way up. You know, you could do that back then. I got uh, involved in the mid-80s and I kind of worked my way up. I got appointed to committees. I also, um, I got on the board relatively, at a relatively young age. Um, I got involved at the committee level with the national organization, it used to be called ATLA, now it's AAJ. Uh, and, and with Peter Perkins involved with, with at that level. Uh, but, you know, I just have always had such a fondness for the people that make up KJA. It really is like a, a big family. Uh, it, it's amazing to see the people that have been there and devoting their time and energy for decades. You know, look, look at Pete Perlman and how long he's been around and how much he has contributed and given back to the organization. He doesn't have to do that anymore. You know, he's paid his dues, but he keeps coming back. He's always there. He's always doing stuff. Uh, and, and that's the neat part about KJA. Everybody's willing to help everybody else, particularly if you're a young lawyer and you have a case that has some problems or you need to figure out how to workshop an issue. All you got to do is pick up the phone or get on the internet, get on the email and email somebody and say, with listserv, you know, have you handled one of these cases? I've got these issues. Can you help me solve them? And, and there's an army of people that will come to your aid. 
and the legal education programs that KJA has put on over the years are second to none. Frankfurt thinks that judges can and should only learn from other judges, and that's just a very myopic view. Um, we learn from lawyers all the time. Why won't the state let lawyers come before us and give us lectures on topics? I don't know. I think it's short-sighted. Uh, so at least, you know, when, when we come to the KJA Judicial Forum, it's sometimes judges, sometimes retired judges, but for the most part, practicing lawyers, talking about topics that come before us every day. And that's helpful to us because we're trying to absorb all the different opinions, see what everybody tells us the law is or should be. And, you know, our obligation is to follow the law and do the right thing. That helps us make intelligent, well-reasoned decisions. Uh, you, you mentioned the benefits that young attorneys um, can get from KJA, uh, and that brings me on to the next topic I wanted to discuss with you, and that's that's some advice that you would have for young attorneys uh, wanting to get into trial work. And, and it's funny for me personally because my first trial that I was first chair in was actually in front of you, uh, and I think I think it. it was a tart case. And I think back, uh, it reminds me of the movie The Rainmaker. When I think back on this. I tried to, uh, I was trying to get this, the first exhibit admitted. I did it about three times. And you finally said, John, why don't you try it this way? <laughs> <laughs> did I give you good advice? Did you get it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. After, after the defense objected successfully three times in a row, we, uh, we kind of figured it out and then didn't have any more trouble after that. But, uh, well, it, it's hard. You know, it's hard to be a trial lawyer because it, it's a lot harder than they show it on television in the movies. You know, in the movies, you, the judge says, counsel, next witness. And you call out a name and the courtroom doors open and this witness walks in. Well, oh my God, you know, what kind of time and energy does it take for you to get, find that witness, find out what they're gonna say, get their testimony on the record, take their deposition, get them committed to come to court and testify. Uh, you know, have somebody bring them to the courthouse for the most part care and feeding of witnesses, get them to come into the courtroom, get them to get their teeth to quit chattering because they're a nervous wreck and finally get them calmed down and get them looking in your eyes and let them tell the story that you've heard that is gonna compel the jury to find in your client's favor. That's hard work and it takes countless hours of prep time to be able to pull that off. And, and you know, you can go to all the seminars you want to, you can read all the books that you want to, but going to court and watching good trial lawyers try cases is how you learn that process uh, and getting up and doing it on your own. That's why I think, you know, lawyers that start out their careers prosecuting criminal cases or defending criminal cases at the public defender's office, they have an advantage because they get a lot more stand up in the courtroom experience time. Right now, particularly right now with the COVID emergency, it's impossible to get trial experience. But even before that, it's just harder and harder to try cases. Um, and, you know, our trial numbers are way significantly down from what they used to be five and 10 years ago. It doesn't feel like it because we've been staying very busy. But you know, the, this is probably a good time to talk about the COVID emergency and the impact it's had not only on the legal system and lawyers, but on the court system. 
And that, that's actually, Judge, that's the uh, very next next question I was going to get to was, um, you know, you're in a unique position of being on the bench here uh, and just your experience thus far. And also, you know, where, where do you think we're heading with this as far as trial work and, you know, the court system? Well, it, it's the court system has been open. We've remained open through the whole process. We've just been conducting all hearings remotely. Uh, either by Zoom or by Skype or by telephone. And it's been working fairly effectively. I think we've learned that there are some efficiencies that we should have adopted a long time ago that we haven't. You know, it, it has not made sense for a long time to have motion hour where people come in, sit and wait for an hour for their case to be called to argue for two minutes and then go back to the office. Uh, you know, I still have lawyers that come in from all over the state on Monday morning for motion hour. That's just terribly inefficient. A telephonic hearing or a Zoom hearing, you can do the same thing and it's a lot easier on everybody. But what we, what we haven't been able to figure out how to do yet, and this is September the 3rd, is safely resume jury trials in the courtroom. Uh, there are statewide committees talking about it uh, the Jefferson Circuit Court general term, all 13 of the judges have been meeting once a week for a general term meeting, talking about all the logistical issues to try and kickstart trials again. Uh, Judge Chavan had a case that was scheduled to go to trial on August the 25th last week, but it settled right before trial. He had another one scheduled this week. I don't know what happened to that one. Uh, I think I don't have one scheduled to go to trial until September the 15th. Um, but the, the problem is how we can resume trials safely. And the biggest pinch point appears to be right now jury selection and the jury selection process. In the past, we would bring in a, a, a jury panel of about 250 to 300 people. We'd put them in the jury room on the first floor, second floor, and we would orient them uh, all the different judges from the different divisions, not different divisions, but different levels, uh, district court, circuit court, family court, court of appeals, Supreme Court would talk to them and kind of orient them as to what we do and how we do it. But we can't do that now because you can't get that many people into a close confine. Uh, so uh, jury selection will be a pinch point in the process. I have the advantage of uh, having a courtroom that's larger than most so I think that will make it easier for me to conduct jury selection safely with social distancing. Uh, some of the courtrooms are being equipped with plexiglass panels for safety reasons. Um, we're, we're just gonna have to try it and do it and do it differently and do it in different ways so that we can get back on track. Uh, it, it, when the COVID emergency first hit, I got a real sense on the civil side that there was a, a drastic slowing of the pretrial preparation process. And maybe it's just that I'm kind of cynical about insurance companies, but I got the impression that the insurance companies were using the COVID emergency as an excuse to stop the forward pace of litigation. Uh, some of the Supreme Court orders have specifically stated, you shall continue to conduct pretrial discovery and move your case towards trial. Uh, so that means you've got to learn how to take depositions via Zoom. Everybody knows how to do that now and it works pretty effectively. 
I, I have to say candidly that there are some situations, some cases, some witnesses that may not lend themselves to a Zoom deposition. If you've got a real document intensive witness, it may be prudent to save that witness for a month or two from now so that you can safely take them live, uh, particularly in a case where you don't have a trial date yet. But you know, we've, uh, we've continued a lot of trials um, and that has slowed the progress of the litigation process. There's no question about that. But uh, I've also been signing lots of agreed orders of dismissal. So cases are getting resolved. I'm sending a lot of cases to mediation still. Uh, the mediators are able to conduct mediation sessions remotely by Zoom. You've probably conducted many and, and you can still get a case settled. It's different, it's harder, but you can still move the case forward and, and reach a resolution. But same thing on the criminal side, you know, it, until we get back to trying cases, uh, criminal defendants don't typically plead guilty until the very last second. They want to wait and see that jury walk into the courtroom before they finally say, okay, I'll take the deal. Uh, so it's really gummed up that process too. Uh, th there's a tremendous backlog that's coming. and It's going to take the system a while to work through that. And, and I was going to ask you about that because, you know, I've had, um, and are you setting trial dates right now at all? Or are you putting any dates out for 2021 or anything? Because I've had several judges that just won't give any trial dates right now. I am. That's and quick, you know, we're, we're under a mandate from the Supreme Court to give priority to in-custody criminal defendants. Uh, and it's funny because having been the grand jury judge in the month of August, it feels like the crime level is up because the police are only focusing on serious crimes like murders and rapes and assaults typical economic crimes are not getting that much attention. So the indictments that are coming out are for murder and rape and assault and arson. And it, it, it feels like, wow, it's a much more serious place that we're in. And maybe we are in a more serious place, but um, it, it, the, the criminal side is probably more harshly impacted than the civil side is because you have to remember that, you know, there are a lot of people that are sitting in a correctional facility somewhere waiting their day in trial. They haven't been convicted of anything yet. They're still innocent. Uh, but one of the most difficult decisions a trial judge makes every day is bail. Uh, somebody's indicted for a crime and you have to determine what the appropriate bail is. And sometimes with significant crimes, that means that they're going to be held in custody until their trial day. And if we aren't trying cases, then the period of time that they're in custody just lengthens. And that's not fair to them. So I, I know that I and, and most of the judges around the state, when the COVID emergency hit, we went back through our dockets and we made difficult decisions about trying to release as many people from custody as we could safely. There are just some people that you can't safely release from custody, or at least I don't think. Some people have to be held in custody prior to trial. I think the backlog is concerning for, for the court system and, and, and certainly attorneys and, and parties. You know, we have these, as you said, these criminal defendants 
who, who you just discussed. And then um, with, with a lot of those cases getting precedent, um, I, I worry about, you know, some of these civil cases that we have that are, um, I just, I fear with cases that are probably ready to go to trial that I have, I, I worry, you know, will it be next year? Will it even be 2022? I, I, I really worry about this backlog and, and how we'll kind of get out of it. Yeah, I think uh, you have, we just work, everybody's going to have to work harder. We're going to have to try more cases. We're going to have to squeeze stuff in. Um, it's, it's amazing what the having a trial date on the calendar does for a case. Because as you know, most cases settle before trial. If there's not a trial date or not a realistic trial date or the trial date's a year off, then that just delays the resolution of the case. Um, you know, the fear of a trial motivates both sides, not just one side. And, and that's a good thing. So, you know, we, we're going to have cases set for trial on Monday afternoons and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays. And on the criminal side, we're going to take a lot of guilty pleas on the day of trial. On the civil side, uh, you know, we're also, the Supreme Court has done an interesting thing in a, in a, I can say in a criminal case for sure, I really haven't looked at the rule in terms of does it apply to civil cases, but it probably does. But the most recent Supreme Court order says that if we have a trial date, you have to have a final pretrial conference within three days of the trial. Uh, that's, I think, designed to just let everybody sit down, put our heads together and say, are we really going to try this case? on Tuesday, or can we get it settled today? So I think that's a good thing. I think that is proactive in terms of bringing everybody together a few days before trial to make sure we're going to go to trial. Sometimes, both on the civil side and the criminal side, some cases just have to be tried. There's no way to break the impasse other than put the facts and the evidence in front of a jury and let the jury decide. Uh, I was amazed last month when I selected the grand jury on August 1, how few people were really concerned about COVID safety concerns. Most of the concern was people that were first responders and they had to be at their job. They could not take time off to devote it to one month as a member of the grand jury. Those people got excused. There were also people that expressed some legitimate concern over their safety in downtown Louisville. Uh, because with the uh, condition as it is now with the different protests, people are concerned about safety. Uh, and I think those concerns are going to go on for a while. I think in downtown Louisville, things are probably going to get worse before they get better, unfortunately. Um, that, that thing you mentioned about the grand jury, just the net, that brought up a thought, um, and I don't know if this is something that's been discussed yet, um, when you all do begin impaneling the juries or, uh, you know, have cases that are ready for uh, the jurors, is it, are jurors going to be able to get off if they have COVID safety concerns or, you know, they don't want to be around others? Is that, is that going to be a reason for them to get out of jury duty? The Supreme Court order talks about that, that if they're caring for somebody or if they're in a a high risk category that we should give that serious concern. And I, I don't think, I, I think if you express an, a concern over your safety or need to take care of somebody else or have a high risk person at home, I, I don't think any of the judges are going to force them to serve on 
a jury panel. But, but you, know, you also got to think about that's going to change the dynamic of the jury. Are we going to have a, a predominantly younger group of people that are going to want to serve on the jury as opposed to a broader spectrum of ages and demographics? That's an interesting question. Yeah, that is. That is. Um, when was your last jury trial? February or March, probably February. I tried a murder case in February. That has to be odd. I, I feel like I'm, used, I'm used to seeing you, you know, every, it seems like so many trials or verdicts that I see, Judge Willett, Judge Willett, it, you, you, it just, it's, I, have, I feel like it has to be um, odd for you to, you know, have sat for six months at this point. I'm sure the longest point in your career without, the, without having any cases tried. It really has been surreal. You know, everybody's been in the office. Everybody's been working. Uh, the courtroom's closed. I'm still in the courtroom most days on my laptop having hearings. Uh, I feel kind of more like a television or movie producer now than a judge because I've got this wall of screens that are up and I'm controlling the docket on one. I may be doing legal research or sending emails on one. I've got one up in front of me that's a camera. Uh, I've also got a telephone up on the bench because most of our uh, civil hearings are done, and a lot of the criminal hearings are done telephonically. We have a Skype link through corrections, so if we have an in-custody defendant, they can participate uh, by Skype real-time. So, you know, we, we've scrambled, and the corrections has done a great job helping to make all that happen because it's really turned their world upside down. Um, we, we've, we've had a lot of people who basically just say, I'm in jail, I'm afraid of COVID, please let me out. And I wish it were that simple, uh, but it's not. We, you know, it doesn't say in the rule book that one of the factors to release somebody from custody uh, is COVID-19 emergency. Uh, Corrections has been working diligently to try and manage uh, the health situation from their standpoint. Uh, it also, you know, we've also got inmates that are in custody in the state facilities all around the state and we're able to link up with them via Skype or by telephone. So uh, we, we used to put people in a van, drive them from the prison to Louisville to have a 10 minute hearing, then put them back in the van and drive them back. So in many respects, it's a lot easier on the prisons to do it remotely. Uh, but it, it, you know, it misses a little bit. It's, it's one dimensional versus two dimensional. I had a criminal sentencing last week uh, on a, a juvenile that reached his 18th birthday. And there's a statutory provision that says that if you're convicted when you're a juvenile and sentenced, then you get to have a final adult sentencing on your 18th birthday. And you're still, if you're in custody, you're in custody under the care of the Department of Juvenile Justice versus the adult correctional facilities. So uh, the defense lawyer didn't want me to sentence remotely. He wanted to have a live court hearing where he could, he said, read the courtroom. He said, I want to make sure, Judge, you're paying attention and I want to, you know, be able to see your facial expressions and read the courtroom. And I, and I, I told him, number one, well, we're, we're constrained statutorily because I have to sentence this young man on his 18th birthday and Department of Juvenile Justice isn't going to keep him any longer, even if I tell them to or ask them to. Once he's 18, he goes out the door. So, uh, I did sentence him as an adult, and uh, unfortunately for him, I sentenced him to a, an adult correctional facility for a significant period of time. 
it was unfortunately a murder case. We hope you are enjoying this episode so far. Before we get back to the second half of our one-on-one, enjoy this message from KJA Platinum sponsor, Ringler Associates, Brad Cecil, Cindy Chanley, and Gail Kristen, sponsors of Legal Legends of the Bluegrass. On behalf of Brad Cecil, Gail Kristen, and myself, Cindy Chanley, we'd like to thank you for tuning in. As your KJA Platinum sponsors, we appreciate all the work you do. As you continue in your practice, keep in mind that we at Ringler are your objective settlement advisors. If you have problems on any part of the settlement resolution, give us a call. We now return to our discussion with Judge Barry Willett. We um, talked about some advice you would have <clears throat> for young attorneys <clears throat> wanting to get into trial work. Um, what are, what's some advice you would have uh, just for all attorneys as far as you know, your experience on the bench? Uh, some advice you would give for things to do uh, in the courtroom and then also maybe some things not to do? Um, Great question. I I think that uh, the most important thing a young lawyer can do is attach him or herself to a senior lawyer that knows what they're doing that will mentor them. We've kind of gotten away from that process, but uh, you, you need to have somebody help continue to educate you and train you. Three years in law school is just a beginning. Uh, once you get that license, you still have a lot of learning to do. Um, I'll, I'll, so that's, that's one bit of advice. Get a mentor. Practice with somebody uh, that is competent, well-respected, that will help you continue to develop as a trial lawyer and let you get experience taking depositions. Uh, examining some of the witnesses in the courtroom, helping with trials, and sitting as second or third chair. That's just absolutely invaluable. You have to continue your legal education by joining organizations like KJA. Uh, Those networks and those contacts are invaluable. Uh, Every position I think I ever got after my first one was through networking at KJA. I had wonderful mentors like Larry Franklin, and Peter Perlman. Uh, I got to work with Justice Charles Leibson back in the 80s when the Supreme Court was drafting the Kentucky Rules of Evidence. That's how old I am, John, <laughs> in the 80s. Uh, but, you know, can you believe that there was a time we didn't have rules of evidence, basically? Uh, so the Supreme Court drafted and adopted a set of evidence rules, and Justice Leibson, for some reason, asked me to be his research assistant. And of course I said, absolutely, anything you need, I'll be happy to help you. And it was great for me because I got to work with a brilliant legal mind and uh, just to see how tenacious and uh, how hard he could push you. I mean, he would push you hard. But one of the things that he had in his office, he had these two big black file boxes and they had, I, I still have them, right here in front of me, I always have a, an index card, uh, a five by eight index card. He had many of them handwritten, some of them typed up with every significant Kentucky and federal case. It was basically just head notes and a summary of the case. Um, and I was just fascinated by that because to me, that was the Holy Grail. That was long before Westlaw or Lexus ever existed. 
you still had to research the cases by pulling out the book, finding the case, doing the research. And he had it all summarized on these eight by five index cards. So I said, Justice Leapson, would you mind one weekend if I borrowed those boxes and made copies of those? He said, absolutely not. I'm not going to let you do that. He said, it won't do you any good. He said, it's like when you were in law school and you were preparing your outline for a class, you couldn't rely on somebody else's. You had to do your own work. You had to create that outline and that process of distilling and summarizing and, and analyzing that case and those facts is what helped you learn the law. Okay, so I gave up on that. We worked a few more months. I got to know him a little bit better and he was getting ready to go on vacation. So I said, Justice Leapson, would you, would you reconsider me borrowing your note cards and let me make a copy of those? He said, well, it's not a good idea. I told you, but if you think it would help you, I'll let you borrow them one week, have them back on this table one week when I get back. They ought to all be in order. Don't mix them up. So I did. I went back to Larry Franklin's office and I made a copy of every one of those cards and cut them out and put them in my own metal boxes. And Justice Sleepson was right. He was exactly right because... <laughs> It was somebody else's work. It wasn't mine, but it got me in the habit of from that day forward, I did my own cards. And, and by then computers were starting to come out and I bought a computer and I started to keep a Kentucky law outline on an outlining system that I have to this day that, you know, it's, it's, it's by topic, it's both criminal and civil Every time I read a new case, I cut and paste a statute, I plug it in there so that, you know, when you get old, John, when you get like me, you may have vague recollections of a particular case you've read or a statute, but being able to word search that outline and going back under that topic heading, I'll be able to say, oh yeah, there it is, there it is, that's the case, that's the statute, that's what I'm looking for. And then I can, you know, I, I still use uh, Westlaw every single day. It's just what's such a wonderful tool. I'm on it all the time. I mean, I even dig down into law review articles and look stuff up, but I, I'm, I'm a constant student of the law every day on the bench. I learned something new that I didn't know that the day before. Uh, so, so long as you're continuing to grow your knowledge, uh, that's what young lawyers need to do. That's what middle-aged lawyers need to do. And that's what old codgers need to do. You need to stay current on the law. Any pet peeves that you have or anything oh, that you would advise peeves. attorneys to avoid uh, in the courtroom? Yes. How much time do we have? No. no we got, yeah, we have 10, 10 more minutes or so. You, you have to remember that you're in an environment where your audience has to be able to hear and see what you're doing. So many lawyers don't use their big courtroom voices when, in the court, when they're in the courtroom. They speak too slow, too quietly. They put their back to the jury so the jury can't hear them effectively or see what they're saying. You have to remember that a lot of people don't just hear what you're saying. Everybody reads lips to a limited degree. You know, one of the problems that we have now societally with COVID 
is that everybody has a face mask on and it makes it really hard to hear. It makes it hard to understand. Uh, and that's going to be an issue going forward in trials and in court proceedings with face masks. But you, you have to practice the, the theatrics of your presentation. You have to make sure that you're the center of attention in the courtroom. There's a great trial lawyer, Russ Herman, from New Orleans, Louisiana. Russ is an incredibly gifted trial lawyer. And if you can get a hold of it, he did a series of videotapes 20, 25, 30 years ago about courtroom dynamics. It was a, a staple on AAJ's website for a long time. I've got a copy of it somewhere. I haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, back when it was on video. That's how old I am, John. Uh, but, but he talks about that and he talks about how you have to give thought and consideration to where you stand in the courtroom, the dynamic, how's the witness going to be heard? Is it a witness that you want to the jury, like your witnesses, you want the jury to hear the story from their lips. But if you're cross-examining, you don't want the jury paying attention to the witness. You want the jury hearing your leading questions because you're basically making the presentation to the jury about what the testimony is. It's just kind of funneling through you. So things like that, that young lawyers don't, or older lawyers don't think about. Um, nuts and bolts kind of things like how to introduce exhibits, uh, how to lay the foundation, uh, you know, mark for identification purposes. Uh, even, even, you know, giving thought to what exhibits you're going to get in. You know, when, when you, I went through two different machinations when I tried cases. I started out a trial notebook fanatic, but then I, I grew out of the trial notebook and I grew into a binder, a, a, a folder system, wherefore every phase of the case, I had a particular folder. So if it's a witness, I've got a folder on that witness and I've got both a, maybe a one page outline of the topics I've got to cover with that witness along with exhibits that I'm gonna get in through that exhibit because you have to give some thought to, I know I've got all of these exhibits that I need to get into evidence. Which witness am I gonna get it in through? One of the things that courtroom presentation software helps lawyers do, I think, is to think ahead of time how you're going to orchestrate the presentation of your evidence. And before we used to just use, you know, documents, but now you can much more dynamically put that information up electronically on the screen. Uh, the jury, we have courtroom presentation equipment in the courtrooms, as you know, that sometimes works. And that really does help the jury see, hear, and understand the evidence better. Uh, you know, but there are lawyers that will still take a little bitty photograph that they've taken and want to hand, hold it up to, for the jury to see. And there's no way in the world the jury can see that. You've got to have everything big enough on a scale that the jury can see it. That's why, you know, the same rule applies. If you're saying something and they can't hear you, what good is it? Witnesses do that too, but it's because they're nervous in the courtroom. Jurors do it in jury selection because they're nervous. They speak quietly and hear what they're saying. So everybody's got to think about their voices and how you project. You got to think about the documents, how you're going to get them in. 
can they be seen? Um, and, you know, basically just telling the story. You've got to tell the story from A to Z. Uh, and it takes a great deal of thought and work to be able to do that effectively. One of the uh, things we're going to do to, to wrap up, uh, and this is a new segment that you'll be the first person we've done this with, a series of rapid fire questions. So I'm going to ask you five short questions and just give me the first answer that pops into your head. Okay. Squirrel. No. <laughs> What's the most important quality a trial lawyer needs? Integrity. What's on your nightstand? A couple of books about Donald Trump that I've read parts of and I get so angry I have to put them down. What's the best piece of advice someone has given you? If you make a mistake, admit it and fix it. What failure did you have that made you a better lawyer? I didn't pass the bar the first time. I didn't pass the bar the second time. I took the bar three times. I think you turned out okay. And uh, I did, and I had a lot of good people that put their hands on my shoulders and said, you know, you got what it takes. You're gonna make it, don't worry about it. Uh, and I know that Frank Haddad had the same experience, uh, but, it, but it really made me hunker down and know that I believed in myself. Uh, I hoped I could be a good trial lawyer, a good lawyer. It's what I really wanted to do. I, the only thing I've ever wanted to be since I was in the fifth grade was to be a lawyer. Uh, so I am fortunate that I was able to have, I think, a pretty good run at being a trial lawyer. Uh, I helped a lot of people. Uh, I feel very fortunate to have been able to practice law for, I mean, be on the bench, be a, a judge for 20 years because I've been able to continue to help people. That's really what trial judges are there to do. We're there to make sure both sides get a fair trial. And in doing what we do, we help a lot of people. Um, because everybody that comes into that courtroom, that case that they've got is the most important case in their universe. Uh, and they have a right to be treated with dignity and with respect and to be heard and to be treated fairly. And uh, that's what we're supposed to do as judges. Uh, well, I don't think there's any we're very fortunate in Louisville to have great trial lawyers. We really do. I, I have to, I have to, you know, pull something on you here. I, I printed the list of past presidents. If you, of KJA, you look at this list, uh, 1965, Charles Leibson, Frank Haddad, Fred Dole, Jim Lenahan, Peter Perlman, Bill Johnson, Larry Franklin, Dick Rodden, Andy Bussold, Greg Neal, Richard Breen, Hugh Moore, Bill Kathman, Jerry Rhodes, Bill Garmer, Richard Hay, uh, Bob Sanders, the list goes on. Doug Myers, Ch Charlie Saladino, Joe White, Chuck Adams, Dick Lawrence, Charlie Moore, Tyler Thompson, Scott Madden, Doug Morris, Joe Satterley, Paul Cossey, Phil Grossman, Vanessa Cantley. You ever heard any of these people? <laughs> these are great trial lawyers. And, and how many of them are still active and still giving back? I mean, it's, it's a special organization. It's a special group. Uh, and it's always been a part of my heart and always will be. It truly is. Uh, and Judge, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to talk with us today. I hope that uh, everyone who listens to this enjoys it as much as I have talking with you. So thank you again for, uh, for being with us here today. My pleasure, John. See you. 
Thank you for listening to Legal Legends of the Bluegrass. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and will continue to tune in to future episodes.